Hello and welcome to the Battle Cry podcast with Mark Meckler. Catch the original live broadcast Sunday nights at 8pm Eastern on Convention of States Facebook and Convention of States Project on YouTube. Go to conventionofstates.com slash pod to learn more. And now, here's the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the honor and the pleasure of introducing our keynote speaker today. There's a saying, evil triumphs when good men do nothing. Our speaker exemplifies a very good man and a very different saying, not on my watch. He has a Juris Doctor degree and practiced law for two decades. In 2009, he co-founded Tea Party Patriots and served as its national coordinator. In 2012, he founded Citizens for Self-Governance to revolutionize American government. This grassroots initiative expands and directs the ever-growing nonpartisan self-governance movement. In 2013, he co-founded Convention of States, which is the primary project of Citizens for Self-Governance. Using the Constitution's uh, solution for uh, fixing our governing system, he serves as president of both organizations. This year, he also served as the interim CEO of Parler, helping the free speech uh, media, uh, social media company to get back online and to um, uh, prepare for a stronger future. He uh, appears regularly on TV, radio, and online, sharing his unsurpassed conservative grassroots perspective on political issues. He is regarded as one of the best grassroots activists in the nation. Uh, he has the uh, gratitude of many for being a servant leader in helping to save our nation. It is an honor to work and fight alongside of him. He traveled here to be with us today from his home in Texas. So won't you please join me in giving a very warm welcome to the President of Convention of States, Mark Meckler. Man, I hate those introductions. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to know what to say. These guys did such a great job, incredible job by this leadership team, don't you think? I had a whole bunch of stuff to say, they took all my best stuff. So. <laughs> you know, I want to start with a story if I could. You're here because you're people who believe in what America stands for. America is an exceptional nation. It's not an average nation. It's not a normal nation in world history. It is truly exceptional. That's become politically incorrect to say that. I don't know if you remember Obama said that... Uh, the United States was an exceptional nation, just like every nation believes they're exceptional nations. But this is truly an exceptional nation. Human history swings on a pendulum. And if you look at all of human history, you can watch that pendulum swing back and forth. And it swings from tyranny on one side, and then it swings over to really bad tyranny on the other side. <laughs> it's not tyranny to liberty. 
There is no liberty on that scale when you look at all of human history. In fact, if you really want to go back to the only time when there's been liberty in human history, in, in recorded human history, where something country was set up kind of like we are now, you have to go all the way back to the judges period in the Old Testament, where they chose judges from among themselves, right? They were governed by themselves. No kings, no rulers, just people choosing from among themselves. And that's the kind of country that we live in. And I believe that this country was given to us by the Lord. The Lord gave us free will. And he gave us a place to exercise that free will. And that's where we live in this United States of America. And the reason that you're here on a Saturday when there are so many other places you could be is you're here because you know that that is at stake. We live in a very unique time in history. There's a lot of darkness out there. You can watch television, you can watch the internet, and you can get wound up about how dark and how ugly everything is because it is. There's darkness out there. There's ugliness out there. I would argue, though, that this is the very best time in American history to be alive. I don't want to live in a time in history when things are not at stake, when there aren't important things to do, when there isn't something of consequence going on. We live in a time, a, a pinnacle time in American history. I think we live on the edge of the greatest renaissance humankind has ever seen, or the Dark Ages. And I'm not saying that to exaggerate. When you think of, in my back pocket is an iPhone which has more computing power than the Apollo 13 mission ran on. It's incredible. We carry that around with us. What those computers are doing for us, the things they're allowing us to do and see and understand in God's universe, absolutely extraordinary. Curing disease at an amazing rate. Curing aging at an amazing... I mean, things that are going on, absolutely incredible. Things we couldn't have even imagined a hundred years ago. And yet, as Ronald Reagan said, we're, we're at a precipice. We have a choice to make. We have a rendezvous with destiny. We are either going to save this country and move forward into this incredible potential renaissance, or we're going to sentence our children to take the first step into a thousand years of darkness. That's what we face. That's why you're here, because we live in consequential times. Not the only consequential times there have ever been. The founders lived in consequential times, and a lot of them made a decision. And they made a decision not to stand by, but instead to stand up. It's a foundational decision that every human being has to make at some point in their life. Are you going to stand by, or are you going to stand up? One of my favorite stories from American history is a story that's not told in any history book. You didn't learn it in school. Your kids won't learn it in school. Even if you're homeschoolers, your kids won't learn it in school. It's the story of a captain in the Continental Army by the name of Levi Preston. Preston fought. He was there at the battle where the shot was heard around the world. And he was one of the original Minutemen. He was a farmer. He was 23 years old when he went out to fight. Basically just a kid. He had a wife and kids himself. He was a farmer, not a soldier, but he went out to fight. He put his life on the line. And I want to understand that mentality. Much of that activity took place here, right around here. I'm in Texas. Texas wasn't around then. I grew up in California. It wasn't around. You come here and you drive through the towns and I know the names from history, from the men and women and the families who stood. Preston was one of those people who stood. So he's there at the original battle. He survives. He goes on to live a long and fruitful life. And in 1843, he's being interviewed by a historian by the name of Mellon Chamberlain. Chamberlain was a young school teacher. He realized that the last Minutemen were about to die off. If you think about it in 1843, they'd be in their late 80s, early 90s today. You know, we all know people that age. Back then, honestly, that's like Methuselah old back then, right? People at 54 was average life expectancy for a man. 
So he interviews Preston. Preston's retired in North Carolina, and he wants to know, why did you fight? The quintessential question, why did you fight? Now, I think we all think that we know the causes, the root causes of the political philosophy of the American Revolution, but Mellon Chamberlain wanted to hear it from the lips of the Minutemen. So he asked him, Captain Preston, when you went out to fight that day, what was it that motivated you? Was it the tea tax? Were you frustrated by paying the high tax on British tea? And Preston says, tea? We didn't drink any tea. I was a farmer. We drank coffee. The boys dumped it in the harbor, and that was good. So he wasn't motivated by that. He said, maybe it was the Stamp Act. You were frustrated by having to buy all those stamps and put them on their documents. Obviously, that was just a tax. It was taxation without representation. Maybe that's what drove you to fight that day. And he said, stamps? Governor Bernard locked them in the armory, and that's the last we heard of it. I'm sure I never bought one of them. (laughs) I know, this is what I learned in school, right? T-Tax, Stamp Act. He asked them, maybe you were reading the great revolutionary writers, the men who inspired the patriots that inspired the American Revolution. You're reading Montesquieu and Blake, and maybe you read Thomas Paine, Common Sense. And he said, I've never heard of those men. We read the Almanac, Bible, Psalms, but those men you speak of, I know not those names. So it's not the revolutionary writers, it's not the philosophers who gave us the foundation for the American Revolution, it's not taxation without representation. He said, well, maybe you were just sick and tired of British tyranny. Anybody in here tired of tyranny? Yeah. So he said, maybe you were just tired of tyranny, and he said, tyranny never felt a whit of it. He went out to fight a war with a musket against the British, the greatest fighting force in human history. So it wasn't tyranny, it wasn't any of this stuff, so naturally Chamberlain is confused, and he says, well, why did you go out and fight that day, Captain Preston? And Preston said, son, when we went out to face them redcoats, we meant only one thing. We had always governed ourselves, and we always intended to. Them redcoats, they intended that we shouldn't. I think that's incredibly important. I think it's the best expression of the political philosophy of the American Revolution that I've ever heard. It's not Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. It's not Washington riding in on his white horse. It's not Adams' brilliance. It's not Madison's scholarship. It's Levi Preston. Levi Preston today could be sitting in this room and you wouldn't know him from anybody. He wouldn't be the best orator. He wouldn't be the strongest warrior. He wouldn't be the greatest organizer. He was just a regular guy. He was a regular guy that decided to stand instead of standing by. He's my inspiration. When I think of the patriots in the American Revolution, when I think back, I just, I can't imagine being George Washington, the indispensable man. Patrick Henry, the most eloquent man of the American Revolution. I can't imagine that. I don't have the brain power of a Madison or an Adams, but I am a guy who is going to stand instead of standing by. I can imagine myself as Levi Preston, and that's what I try to do. And I'm really serious about this. It's not just a a verbal joke or a verbal cue for you guys. I'm so serious about the idea of Levi Preston and average people saving this country. It's not just at the revolution. It's all through the uh, country's history. Think about D-Day and the guys who took the beach on D-Day. We know so few of their stories, of the thousands of men who stormed that beach that day, regular people, teenagers, who stood 
instead of standing by. Many of whom who fell. We don't know their stories and we don't know their names. I hope I would have that kind of courage. I don't know. I've never had to face that. Most of us never have. I hope most of us never will. But those are men who are willing to stand instead of stand by. I take this seriously. You know, some of you watch me on my Facebook Lives. You'll see I have a dog that wanders around in the background. I take Levi Preston so seriously. My dog is Levi Preston. (laughs) Never want to forget that story. See, we're going to do something or not. We're going to fight or not. And by the way, whether you fight or not isn't the distinction between whether the country is saved or not. I mean, I'm going to tell you the responsibility is yours. The duty is yours. It's up to you to make the choice if you're going to stand or you're going to stand by. That's up to you guys. But the reality is our duty is to do the duty. Our duty is to fight. The results belong to God. All we can do is fight. And I think this is especially pertinent here in New Jersey. I do hear people say in blue states, and I'm originally from California, I hear people say, oh, it's never going to pass in New Jersey. Convention of states can never happen in California or Illinois or New York or wherever, name your blue state, right? And, and my question is, oh, is it somehow your obligation to win? I'm unfamiliar with that scripture, <laughs> right? We are in a church. This is appropriate. We're called to fight. We're called to put on the full armor of God and fight the righteous fight for that which we know is right. I've never read anywhere in Scripture, I've never heard anybody I admire I say, say, hey, you know what? That's the right thing to do, but don't do it because seriously, I mean, it's hard. (laughs) Your odds aren't very good. That's not who we are as Americans. When we went out and we fought the American Revolution, what were our odds of winning the American Revolution? Can you imagine The British were the greatest empire in human history. I want you to think about that. The greatest army that had ever been assembled, the most well-trained, the most well-armed, the most well-fed, the most well-paid, the most well-disciplined, and Levi Preston went to fight those guys. Do you think he said, well, I don't know, they're pretty good. Maybe we shouldn't do this. (laughs) It's it's hard. They might beat us. We might lose. We don't know the result, right? We don't know what's... You know, we probably can't win, so let's just all stay home. No, he didn't say that. He stood instead of standing by. He went out to fight. So it's not about whether we're going to win. I get tired of people, I don't know, we can't win in New Jersey. I don't care. It doesn't matter. We have a duty. We have an obligation. Chris said we have a duty. We have an obligation to people who came before us. We can sit in this room. We can sit in this church. We can worship the God that we worship because men and women and families and communities and states have been willing to stand and die for those rights. History will judge us. History judges everybody, right? The victors write the history. Someday, people will turn around and they'll look back at us And they're going to say one of two things. They're going to say when the lamplight of liberty was flickering, those people bailed out. And they're going to ask a question. Your grandkids, your great-grandkids, your posterity, they're going to say, does anybody remember what it was like when people were free? It's an extraordinarily terrifying thought. I look at my kids and I think about that. Or they're going to say, That generation was willing to stand. When the lamplight of liberty was flickering, they stood. They were willing to fight. They were willing to do things that were uncomfortable. They were willing to go to meetings on Saturdays. They were willing to stand on corners and knock on doors and work for candidates. We're not asking you to take up arms. 
But we are asking you to fight. This is serious stuff. And I'm not just asking you to fight, I'm asking you to sacrifice. And this is an important concept that I think we've lost in this country, and I think we are worse off for it. When we look back to the older generations, the generations, especially World War II generations, they understood the idea of sacrificing for liberty. People, everybody in the country knew people who were dying for liberty. They were sacrificing materially, right? People were going, women were going to work in factories who'd never been out of the house before. Their men were away at war. There were rubber drives and steel drives. They were collecting stuff. People were collectively sacrificing and suffering for a cause. And something's happened over the last few generations. They're like, sacrifice? Well, does that mean I don't get to sleep in on Saturday? Like, we don't understand sacrifice in our society today. And so I am asking you to think about sacrifice. It's a big ask. I know this is serious stuff. You know, it's a, it's a hardcore burden I'm laying on you guys. And I, I mean this genuinely, and I, I, it's just because I'm going to be honest with you. In the beginning of the movement, I used to come out and I would tell people, it's not that much. We don't ask it that much of you. The founders were willing to put their lives on the line. And one of my friends who was a serious historian of American history said, man, you are really underselling what you're asking people to do. This is a hard ask. I'm asking you to put yourself on the line in a way where you'll probably experience shame where you might get chased out of your job, where you might not be so popular at school, in your kid's school, or at church. I'm asking you to speak up when people say things that are nonsensical, when people say things about, you know, I'm going to say all the politically incorrect stuff, when people promote racism through this critical race theory stuff, when people promote all this madness around gender, 57 genders, men or women, women or men, boys or girls, all are none, 57, no. You can sit back and you could say nothing and maybe you'll be a little bit more comfortable and you can say when you go to bed at night that night, I didn't do the thing. I didn't say the thing. Why, when we don't say the thing, why don't we say the thing? Because we don't want to be uncomfortable, right? Because well, I don't want to make somebody else feel bad. I, I, I might feel uncomfortable. People might be mean to me. We're going to lose our country if we don't start doing this stuff. Every single republic in the history of the world has failed. We're a republic. We've lasted longer than any republic in human history because we are founded on the right principles, because we have a constitution that embodies those principles. But the constitution is a parchment barrier. You guys ever hear that phrase? founders said it. They didn't mean anything bad about the Constitution. It was a call to us. It was to tell us that we have to be the body of the Constitution. We are the bones. We are the muscles. We are the sinews. Without that, it's just paper. So if we don't stand, if we're not willing to put ourselves on the line, we will lose the country. You know, it's, it's a flattering privilege to be introduced as somebody who says, not on my watch, but it's not up to me. It's up to you. And I mean that collectively. And what these guys were saying about New Jersey is so important. The, the team that I hold up more than any other in the country that is doing the most extraordinary work, in my opinion, that is building the best team, that is doing the best activism, is here in New Jersey. I talk about this all the time when I travel because people, oh, it's so hard to do this. It's so hard to build this. You don't understand what it's like in California, Illinois, wherever we're talking about it. And I'm like, 
Go talk to New Jersey and then come back and tell me how hard it is, right? Because you guys can do it. And there's a certain attitude here in New Jersey, right? You know, we... (laughs) I like it. I travel a lot, right? And so, you know, you go to Iowa and people are Iowa nice and you go to Minnesota and they say, no, we're Minnesota nice or whatever. Upper Midwest, they're very quiet and nice. Come to New... I tell them, go to New Jersey if you want to know how it's done, right? Like there's no pulling punches here. That's why you can do this, right? Just be what you are. Just be bold, be brash, be brave. That's... That's how New Jersey's wired in the first... By the way, that's the whole way the whole rest of the country looks at you. You know, these shy people in Iowa, they're like, I wish I had a little New Jersey in me, maybe, right? <laughs> you guys can do this. And you do set a model for the rest of the country. And it does not matter whether or not your legislature passes this. I'm not telling you not to fight for it. I'm not telling you I don't believe you can get it done. It doesn't matter where, whether any individual state passes it. All we have to do is get to 34 to get into convention. All we have to do is be in the fight. All you have to do is be an inspiration for other people. And importantly, it's not just about convention of states. It's about saving the country. You know how you save the country? Run for school board. Replace your school board. Run for town council, right? So while that that is not specifically quote-unquote convention of states, we encourage people to do that. We support people who do that. We get in the fight for people who do that because, you know, we're going to save this country. Who who said up here that we pull the, the, that Trump tried to pull the plug on the swamp from above? That was a great line. We try to pull it from above. We think in Washington, D.C., they're going to pull that plug from above and it's going to drain and gravity doesn't work that way. We're going to do it from here. You guys absolutely... 100% can win your town council. 100%. You can win your school boards. In South Lake, Texas, I'll tell you a story. South Lake, Texas, a very wealthy suburb outside of Dallas, their school board went insane, completely woke. All this critical race theory garbage was going on, all this weird using each other's locker rooms and all that stuff was going on. And the parents just said, hell no, we're not taking this. And parents organized And it was three families started this thing, and they got a slate of candidates for the school board, and they got a slate of candidates for the city council. And I can tell you today, the entire school board in South Lake and the entire city council, as of last month, 100% conservative. In one cycle, in one election cycle, if we get organized, if we build a family like this, if we build a network like this, we can make this happen. This is really important, and this, so COS is about much more. You heard the line, Monica says it all the time. If we get to a convention, if we get resolutions, get to a convention, if we ratify those resolutions, if we amend the Constitution, and we go home, I consider that a failure. That'll be the greatest failure of my lifetime. You would think that would be success. I could retire then, go ride horses, whatever stuff I like to do. No, I, I would consider it a failure, because if you're not in the fight in your own community, in your own school board, in your own state legislature, then we're going to lose the country. We right now sit in a country that is closer in the way it's set up, in my opinion, to the founding period than any time in American history. 
Does that surprise anybody? I see some surprised faces out there. Everybody's like, we're so far away from American history. There's a couple reasons I want you to understand, a couple ways I can explain this to you. Early on in American history, if you had come to, say, Trenton, small community, right? Relatively, I mean, very small compared to what we think of even generally as smaller towns now. It was very homogenous. People in the community all knew each other pretty much. You know, there were a few churches. Everybody knew each other through church and civic organizations. It would have been primarily an agricultural community, so mostly farmers or people who worked in the farm industry. Everybody a lot alike, what I call a community of interest. This was true all over the country, right? Even the big cities were small by our standards. So people in a particular city, in a particular community, in a particular colony or state were very much alike. Over the decades and then ultimately centuries, we've grown very different than that. For example, if you look, go to Philadelphia, which is where I'm staying right now, if you go to Philadelphia, like people in one area of Philadelphia have nothing to do with the people in another area of Philadelphia, right? I mean, you, you got very urban areas, you got suburban areas, you got some rural areas, you got industrial, you got poor areas, you got wealthy areas. So the communities are all divided. Philadelphia is not a city so much as it is a conglomeration of communities, right? So, but today, because of technology, we have something very unique going on. Let's say you like to crochet. Any crochet? I'm not a crocheter. <laughs> oh, there's one in the background. If you like to crochet, you can go online and you can find thousands of people all over the country like to crochet, right? You can find patterns, you can find people to share tips and tricks and products, and it doesn't matter what your thing is. If it's conservative politics, if it's art, if it's wine, whatever it is, you can find a community of interest online that will be filled with nothing but people to whom you can relate, just like in the founding era. So technology has taken us back to this place where we can build communities of interest. You know, it's fascinating because if you go online, you can actually find a really big community of interest, five million people who all love convention estates. Right? This is an incredible thing. So we have this ability to group ourselves by interest. It used to be geographic in the days of the founding era. Today, we can do it by choice technologically. So I think we're closer to the founding era in that way. I also think, you know, I talked about the countries coming apart. Anybody think the country's coming apart? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So I have a theory about this. Uh, the country's coming apart, and it's awesome. That doesn't seem like that's selling very well in here. Here's why I think it's awesome. If you look back at the entire history of the United States of America, it's a history of a country made up of people in diverse regions who really don't like each other. That's our entire history. If you look at the colonial era and you look at the difference between the colonies, they didn't like each other, they didn't trust each other, and in fact, based mostly upon Christian sectarianism, they hated each other. Right? Now, you, you guys are blasphemers. We can't even live in the same colony as you. They didn't trust each other. There were literally military skirmishes between colonies. 1787, during the convention, New York and your own New Jersey were about to come to military blows over tariffs. Okay, so we have this thing in our mind that, oh, the colonies, they all loved each other. They linked arms. They got, went and fought the American Revolution. They were all buddies. No, it wasn't that way. Why did they link arms? Because there's an existential threat, something that is more threatening than they consider each other, something they trust less than they trust each other. That's King George III. That's the British Empire. It's time to separate. So we link arms. We go fight a war. Now, I will tell you, for I know a lot of veterans 
I, I'm not one, but if you talk to veterans, if you've been in battle with somebody, there is a brotherhood that is unbreakable. Something happens when people go and put themselves in that kind of an extreme circumstance and serve together and lives are threatened and lives are lost, and there is a bond that is built that is unbreakable. And you, you've heard a band of brothers. This is a real deal, right? So the colonies went to war together, and you had literally regiments from different states, from Pennsylvania and Kentucky, fighting side by side, fighting and dying side by side. And so when it was all over, when the revolution is over, and they all come back home, and they're going to form up a country, now they all love each other, right? No. No, they don't. In fact, they distrust each other so much, they form the Articles of Confederation, one of the worst governing documents ever created because it sets up something that's impossible. And the point of the Article of Confederation is this. I don't trust you. You don't trust me. I don't like you. You have nefarious motives. And so none of us is going to grant anybody any power over any of the rest of us. It's not even a government. It's impossible, right? So they set up an impossible structure based on the fact that they didn't trust and didn't like each other and were all so different. So it doesn't work. And so years later, seven years later or so, it's not working. It's a big problem. They get together in convention in Philadelphia. And those men get in that room. And these are some of the greatest statesmen in human history. And the best part is they all love each other, right? They accuse each other of all kinds of stuff. There's hatred. There's bickering and fighting. The convention almost falls apart multiple times. Big states don't trust small states. Southern states, northern states. It's a freaking mess. But what comes out of that incredible, beautiful mess is the finest form of government ever known to human beings for protecting human liberty. It's our federalist system. And we don't think of it this way, but our federalist system is the perfect government for people who don't like each other. Because <laughs> what we decided is, look, I don't really want to give you power over my stuff over the basic stuff in my state. So what I'm going to do is we're going to set up a deal where there's certain things we have to do together because there are existential threats. 1787, England's still a threat. Spain's still a threat. France is sort of an ally, but kind of still a threat. So we're going to set up a government that allows us to work together on the limited amount of things that we need to work together on, national defense, international trade, stuff like that, right? Stuff that's necessary, interstate, everything else to the people and to the states. That sounds pretty good, right? Okay, so here's what happens in history. Well, I'm giving you a history of something I call the great decoupling. I'm writing a book about this right now. The country is decoupling, right? So you go, I'm going to fast forward a bunch of stuff. You get to, we learn to love each other after that, don't we? It's so awesome. Country gets along so well. We grow, we grow, we grow. It's so fantastic. We love each other so much that in the 1860s, we fight the Civil War. <laughs> we haven't learned anything. Why? Because we're human beings. Like, this is our nature, we can't change. This is how people are, right? So it's hard to live together with millions of people under one system of government. We hate each other so much at that point, over 700,000 people die, and we force the South into a union. Literally, by force. That's how this country is held together. Thank God, right? A lot of good stuff comes out of that, but it's a very ugly period in American history. So now you have a union, a forced union, so we don't, obviously don't love each other. You move forward. The first time, I would argue, in American history we're really unified, World War II. We get into World War II, and people say there is an existential threat overseas. We've got to fight this war. We come together. We fight this war. And honestly, when we come home after the war, probably the first time in American history where America's pretty unified. 
Like people come home, you've had people from multiple states fight alongside each other in World War II, kind of changes the psyche of America. But if you really dig in, if you really dig in, I'm talking 1945, 1948, go to Mississippi in 1948 and travel around, go to Biloxi, go wherever you want to go in Mississippi, then go to New York City. Two different countries. They're not the same. They don't eat the same food. The culture's not the same. The entertainment's not the same. The weather's not the same. The people are not the same. Right? That's the way it is. And it's, it's that way all over the country. It's still that way. 1950s, something starts to happen. We get national TV in the 1950s, right? National TV start to get shows that I could watch in Mississippi and I can watch in New York. It's kind of a weird thing that's happening technologically, right? So now I'm starting to absorb culture. If I live in Mississippi or I live in New York City, it's the same. We can talk Father Knows Best, Leave It to Beaver. We start to get national brands, Baraxo Soap, Lucky Stripe Cigarettes. We start using the same products. We start to build a national culture. I would argue it's a veneer. It's not deep. It's not really culture. It's a veneer of culture. Get into the 1960s and we get the advent of franchising. We take this for granted. 1960s now, you can start to drive from Mississippi to New York, and you could eat at the same places the whole way along. That wasn't true. In Mississippi in 1950, the food's very different than the food in New York in 1950. But by 1960, 65, 70, you can eat the same food all over the country. Another layer to that veneer. NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball. We all start participating in national sports leagues. I'm rooting for my team, you're rooting for yours. But we're all part of the same league together, national veneer. By the 1970s, we have the heyday of big government in America. Big government is completely unchecked in Washington, D.C. In fact, there's not even anybody arguing against it in the 1970s. Ronald Reagan becomes a reaction to this in the 1980s. So why wouldn't we have a big, giant, central government if we're all the same? But we're not. So underneath, underneath this veneer of e pluribus unum, this thing is starting to fracture. In the 1960s, you get the rise of radical leftist culture. This is actually part of the rise of Marxism in America. It's not called Marxism at the time, but you have a lot of people openly promoting communism. You got the hippie movement, you got the free love movement, and it starts to break American society apart underneath the veneer. Still watch the same TV, still same products and all that, but something's happening underneath. And that continues to accelerate to the modern era. Today, people like us, Look at people on the left, on the radical left, especially, and think, what in God's name are you thinking? I don't even like you. <laughs> right? I'm thinking, what? You, you tell me it's okay to kill children in the womb? You tell me it's okay to kill children nine months in the womb or right after they come? What is wrong with you? You tell me that we can give drugs to little kids to make them change from boys into girls? Right? Chemical castration. What is wrong with you? You tell me there's no God, you tell me America is evil, and I'm thinking of people on the left. You people are out of your minds, right? You're out of your minds. You know what people on the left think about people like us? You're racist, right? You're, you're homophobes, you're misogynists, you're Neanderthals, you're evil, you're Nazis, you're actually Hitler. That's what they think about you. Okay, so we now live in this country. Is, is anything I've said not ring a bell? Does it sound accurate to you guys? Okay, so that's where you live. Now you've placed yourself appropriately in American cultural history. All right, so we live in a country where we're very different. We have very different ideas, left coast, east coast, right? You got some very middle America, rural versus urban. We got some very different ideas. So what happens? Here's what happens. The country's going to come apart. It is. It's absolutely, this is inevitable. This cannot be stopped. It's coming apart. So the question is, how does it come apart? 
And there are two ways that I see it coming apart. One way is not good. One way is there's secession. You hear states talking about secession. Uh, secession means violence. There's no easy way to divide this country, is there? Like, I mean, look at your state, right? You can go from, like, in, in the heart of urban New Jersey is as blue as it gets, and then you can go out into rural areas, and you've got these Republican red counties, traditional value. How do you divide New Jersey? How do I divide Texas? We think of Texas as a red state. Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, El Paso, and Austin, all blue cities. How do I divide Texas? You know, my idea is you just kick them all out of Texas, but I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to send them here either. I don't, I'm not sure. How many does Guantanamo hold? Okay, so, <laughs> God, that was so politically incorrect. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, not enough, I think, is the right answer. So, so I just don't see a way for that to work. I don't see how you can pull the country apart. There's no dividing line in the country, north-south, east-west. There's no way to say this is the red, this is the blue. It's not possible. And it would be violent and ugly. I hear people, especially conservative people, often say, oh, well, we just need a good revolution. And my answer to that is look at the history of revolution. If you think that, I would ask you, seriously, read the history of revolution. Because revolution does not look like the American Revolution. If you want to know how revolution ends up, look at the French Revolution. The French Revolution is sort of the archetypal revolution. And what you end up getting is you have this tyranny, and there's this idea we got to throw off the tyranny, overthrow the tyranny, and what you end up with is much worse tyranny. That's the normal end of and why, it's just It's simple. This is not a complicated thing because... In, when you have a period of societal unrest, usually the people who end up in charge are the worst people because they're willing to do the most violence. They're, they're the most cutthroat, the most bloodthirsty. They're, they're just the most dangerous, amoral people in your society end up in charge. So that's the history of revolution. You know, we, we had a civil war in this country, right? It was ugly. 700,000 plus people died in the Civil War. And you look how our Civil War turned out. Thank God, right? Slavery's ended and there's reconstruction. It takes a long time to get it right, but ultimately we're getting it right. So we had that, but most Civil Wars, they don't end up like that. Most Civil Wars, the worst faction wins. Whoever's the most violent, the most aggressive, the most bloody wins. That's the history. So I say that route is not the right route. I'm not saying it won't happen. I don't know. I'm not God. I can't know these things, but I don't think that's the right route. So if that's not the right way, what is the right way? And I would say this, thank God for the founders. Thank God for the founders because they gave us a government designed for people who don't like each other. How convenient. It seems like that's where we're at, right? It's just now it's really broken back out in the open. And so here's what we do. I didn't plan it this way. This is just history unfolding for us. Eight years ago, we started the Convention of States Project. What did we say? Self-governance. What did we mean by that? We got to stop governing from this one thing in the center that makes everybody angry. We got to let everybody go back to their corners, govern themselves, take care of their own states, take care of their own families, take care of their own communities. That is the entire point of the Convention of States. The country is coming apart. You are being called to the fight. You have a role to play. You are going to stand or you are going to choose to stand by. And in the end, this country is going to be saved against all odds and against the course of history or it's going to fall. I can't predict. God knows that. It's not my job. It's not your job to know that. Our job is to do our duty. 
Our job is to stand and fight. I want to close with one story, if I could, a personal story. I have a son who, who uh, he, he had kind of a rough growing up. You know, a lot of us have kids, they go up and they go into high school, and Jacob was kind of off the path in high school, and ultimately, uh, you know, my wife likes to say, oh, he got two years of college credit in high school, and I always say, you forgot the part where they kicked him out. <laughs> it's kind of a mom thing, right? So Jacob wasn't going to class, he, you know, he was never a bad kid, but he, he just wasn't on the track, and he ultimately... Uh, you know, he, in our family, got an ultimatum, I don't, you're going to have to leave the house. I don't care what you do. You, you have a job. You can go get an apartment. You can join the military, whatever. He, he went and joined the Marine Corps. He made an incredible, wise decision. He told me one day, uh, and he was kind of a soft kid, and I said, join the Air Force or something. What are you doing? Join the Marine Corps. <laughs> Sorry, are there Air Force vets in here? I could have got in trouble. Over here. <laughs> In Marine Corps family, we call it the chair force, so sorry about that. <laughs> so anyway, he said, look, I just want to do the hardest thing I can do. I need to prove this to myself. And it was the right decision for him. So he goes off, he joins the Marine Corps, goes to the Marine Corps, does really well. It really reshapes him as a man. It's incredible. I'm very proud of Jacob. And then he comes out, and he does four years, and then he goes off to law school. He's in law school at Scalia Law right now, which is a conservative law school in Arlington, Virginia. It's George Mason's law school. So he goes off there, he's doing very well in law school, and he decided he wanted to go into finance, and I think it's a good decision, he always wanted to make a lot of money, and you want to make a lot of money, go where the guys make a lot of money, and so he was going to go into finance law, and I was trying to help him meet some people, and he called me about six months ago, and uh, we are talking about this, and I said, you know, I've got some guys I think you need to meet, and he said, yeah, I don't want to go into finance anymore. And I said, I don't understand. Like, we've been working on this. It's been your plan for a while. What happened? He goes, you know, when I think back to the American Revolution, and I think back to the people who actually fought in the American Revolution, I feel like we're at that period again in our history. And he said, and when I look back, I look at the guys who fought for the patriots, and I have so much admiration for them. Like, just I think back, and I think, Man, would I have had the courage? Would I have been willing to stand? Would I, would I have been one of the guys on the battlefield or not? And, and I admire those guys. And he said, you know, even when I think of the Tories, the people who were loyal to England, I, I have respect for them. I think they were wrong, but I respect them. They stood for the things that they believed, right? They believed that we were part of the British Empire, that the monarchy was the best form of government. They were loyal to the monarchy, and they were willing to stand and fight and to stay and fight. And so I have respect for them. And he said, there's about a third of the population that they just didn't do anything. They kept doing their businesses. They made money off the revolution. They didn't want to be involved. And he said, those people, they disgust me. And I don't want to be one of them. And he said, we live in a time, my son said, we live in a time right now, that's our moment. Like, we're, we're at this moment where American history is going to pivot. And the question is, what did we do? And I don't want to look back and think I didn't fight. And so he asked me to help him find a job where he could be kind of in a warrior legal position. He is. I'm really proud of him. This summer, he's working for Stephen Miller out of the Trump administration and Matt Whitaker, former AG. And they're filing every litigation you can possibly imagine against the Biden administration. So, good stuff.
So I, I tell you that story, one, because I love to brag on my kids, who doesn't? But two, because he gets it. And we got to make a decision. And he made a decision at his own financial cost. He's putting himself through law school. He made a decision that he was going to stand instead of standing by. So for those of you who come here today, you've already made the first step in standing. A lot of you are already involved in Convention Estates. I know a lot of you signed the petition already. But what I'm really asking you to do is more. I'm asking you to stand and to step up to talk to one of the folks you saw on stage or the other volunteers that are here and volunteer. Put some time in. Put some of your life, your energy, your blood, your belief, your heart into the movement. I'll promise you this. If you stand, you'll never be alone, not as long as I'm alive. God bless you guys. Thanks for having me tonight. This has been the podcast version of the Battle Cry with Convention of States Action President Mark Meckler. Originally aired as a live video broadcast on Convention of States Facebook and Convention of States on YouTube. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod and become part of the solution that's as big as the problem. Thank you for listening.